Well, we're, we're at the end of our Story of God series. And as I was thinking about some of the things we've talked about, I realized we hadn't really talked much about the author of Revelation, the author being John the Apostle. Because we've really been focusing on what Jesus had to say to the church because we said that the story of God continues through the church. So we've been really looking at what was Jesus's words of encouragement and challenge to the early church. But as I was thinking about the author, as I was thinking about John and, and Jesus appearing to John and saying, hey, I want you to write down all these things that I'm going to show you. I started thinking about the life that John's lived. Remember, John was probably the youngest of all the disciples. He was probably 15 or 16 when he first encountered Jesus. John was the only disciple that we know of that was at the actual crucifixion, who actually sat at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. We know that John went on to plant many churches after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. So he's lived a, a full life. And as an old man, Jesus comes to him and gives him this vision of the way things really are. And John was a really brave man. There's a story about John that was recorded by Eusebius, one of the earliest church historians. He lived during the third century. He wrote about John as an old man. And he told this story. He said, John led a very young, in his old age, led a very young and rebellious man to Christ. And he began discipling him. But John had to go on a trip. And so he went to the bishop of the town and he said, hey, I want you to look after this one guy that I've been discipling. I want you to take care of him while I'm gone. And when I get back, I will continue discipling him. And so he went on his trip. And when he came back, he went to the bishop and he said, you know, where's the young man I left in your care? And the bishop said, well, he's dead. And John said, what do, you, what do you mean he's dead? And according to Eusebius, he, the bishop said to him, well, he's dead to God. He went on to tell John that the young man had fallen back with his old friends. He'd gone back to his life of crime. In fact, he was now a leader in a band of robbers that lived up in the mountains. And if anyone tried to get up there, anyone tried to go up into that region, they were killed. And Eusebius says that John immediately tore his cloak, which was a sign of grief, and then he said, get me a horse. I love this. This old man, he's probably 80 years old. He's like, get me a horse. And so they bring him a horse. And immediately this old man jumps on this horse and he makes his way up for the mountains where it's death to go. And of course, as soon as he gets up close to where the robbers are hiding out, um, he's spotted by, you know, the guys who are keeping watch and they, they seize him. And he says, good, I wanted to be captured. Now take me to your leaders. So they bring this old man before the leaders, one of whom was the young man that John was discipling. And Eusebius says, as soon as the young man saw John, even though he was armed, he began running for his life. He just took off. And then, and I love this, he said John started running after him. This 80-year-old man starts booking it after this young guy. And if you remember the Gospel of John, if you remember when John is writing about the resurrection, and, and he says, as soon as Peter and him found out that the tomb was empty, they both started running towards the tomb. And then John in his Gospel makes sure, uh, he tells us this actually three times, that he beat Peter to the tomb, that he was faster than Peter. And so here we have this old man, and he's still running. And he cries out after the young man. He says, why flee from me? I'm an old, unarmed man. 
Don't you see there's still hope of life for you? I'd gladly suffer death for you, just as the Lord suffered death for us. I would be happy to exchange my life for yours. And Eusebius writes, hearing these words, the man stopped, threw his weapons down, and trembling, he began to weep bitterly. That's a pretty incredible story. Don't you want to have stories like that? Don't you want to have stories like John had? I mean, the bravery of it, the the risk that he took, the other focusedness of it. John had a story of greatness. And I, I want that. I want my story to be filled with stories of greatness. But as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking so much of my story is more like that young man who falls back into old habits, who runs away. And I realize how thankful I am for all those that have run after me. So as we end this series on the story of God, where are you with your story? Where do you find yourself in your own personal story? Are you running away? Are you living a safe but boring existence? Have you decided that it's not worth hoping for something better than what you have? Do you want to be great but don't know how? Or are you running after others no matter what the cost is to yourself? Throughout this series, both in part one and part two, we've been saying that every story, all of our stories are all part of the larger story, the larger story that God is telling, a story that started in the heart of God. And if it is true that God is love, then that means that the core of each of our stories is love. Love wrote the play. So what does this have to do with the passage that we read today? Well, the passage we read today gives us a glimpse, not of how the story ends, but how the story continues. And if we see it, if, it if, we, if we get what we're looking at, it invites us today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that into a story that will require bravery and risk-taking and other focusedness and greatness from us. So what do we see? When Jesus invites John up to, to heaven... John gets a glimpse of what we were designed for, what God had in mind when he thought us up. John saw worship. Now, as a a Christian kid of the 90s, armed with my WWJD bracelet and and flood by jars of clay blaring in my car, like I always pictured that eternity and, and the worship of God forever and ever and ever was all of us gathering around God, singing shout to the Lord with just infinite key changes. And I remember that, I mean, the key change got me every time in that song. So can you imagine if you just keep, just keep going? Well, um, as great as that would be, what we have here is a much more compelling picture of what we were built for. Next Sunday is the Super Bowl. Um, and let's say your team made it. Um, and, and this isn't just your team. It's more than your team. It's, it's, it's your team, right? And, uh, you know, Peyton Manning is your boy, or as uh, my little daughter Alice calls him, football Manning. Football Manning is your boy. And all week you're going to read about this upcoming game. 
And you're going to go over all the statistics and you're going to talk about it with whomever will listen to you. And then on Sunday, you will spend a great deal of time and effort and possibly money to actually get in the presence of the object of your adoration. And once you're there, once all your senses are aware of being in the presence of football manning and the Denver Broncos, your whole posture will change. You'll praise the football. You'll shout. Your face will be aglow. You will worship. Now, next Sunday, you will do exactly what you were designed to do, even though the object of your worship is incorrect. But the reason you'll act the way that you'll act next Sunday is because that's the way you were designed to act. You were built for worship. Now, maybe some of you aren't into football. Um, So what about sex? Uh, wake up. Hello. Um, I, uh, I'm going to be talking about sex for two weeks coming up. And so I thought, well, why not have a trial run, see if I can do this without being too awkward and weird. Uh, and so y'all can tell me afterwards if I succeeded in that. Uh, but Malcolm Muggridge called sex the mysticism of materialist and the only possible religion in a materialistic culture. Y'all, he's talking about us. <laughs> We're the materialistic culture. Now, some of us are blatantly addicted to sex, but most of us, those of us who show up at church, we're more hidden with this struggle. But the truth is we are unbelievably obsessed, overwhelmed, and overpowered by sex, all of us. Many of us wouldn't want others to know just how much this lays on our heart. We don't want to talk about the struggle, how much power a particular person or a particular picture, or sexual idea, or fantasy, or action from our past or our present. We don't want to talk about how much power that has over us. But there's a reason that it's a common marketing principle that sex sells. It has great power. Why? Because sex ultimately is a form of worship, and that's what we were built for. Or look at royalty. Any uh, history of kings and queens is filled with great tyranny and abuse and slavery. And yet any country that still has a royal family, they become totally obsessed with the glitz and glamour of them. Some of us are obsessed with it. Some of us woke up at an ungodly hour a number of years ago to watch Prince William marry Kate Middleton. Why? Because we were designed for worship. We make the super beautiful, the super athletic, the super rich, even the super criminal. Um, And and I I didn't mean to put judgment on any of you that stayed up to watch Kate and and William get married. Because last night I stayed up till 3.30 finishing making a murderer. um, Because I couldn't stop. I couldn't go to sleep because I was so stressed about what was going to happen. And then I was still stressed at the end of it. So, um, But we make people into kings and queens because we were designed for worship, because we were built to worship something greater than ourselves. And I believe that's because deep down in each of us, there's a memory. And maybe it's even just the slightest trace in our souls of someone sitting on the throne who's powerful and who's just and who's wise and who's mighty and who's as glorious as the sun shining in its full strength. And because we long to return to that, we bow down to beautiful bodies 
or incredible football teams or to powerful people. Malcolm Muggeridge also said, for our spiritual nature, like our bodily natures, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison, but eat it will. Now maybe you're thinking, sure, I know there's some people who are, who are worshipers of sex, or there's some people who worship football or celebrity, but I'm, I'm not that way. I'm sensible. Or maybe you might even be a skeptic, and, and the only reason you're here tonight is because someone's been begging you to come and check out this place. And you say, I don't worship at any altar. That's not me. Well, you might be right. Maybe it's possible to not worship anything. But worshiping nothing might even be worse for you than worshiping the wrong thing. One of my favorite plays is called Aquas. And, um, and it is a dark play, um, but I, I, it's a fascinating play. And it was recently revived on Broadway starring Harry Potter. Um, and uh, in this play, there's a boy who worships horses. He believes that horses are God. And the play really centers around his relationship with his psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist finds because the boy worships horses, the boy is pulsating with life. When he gallops, it invigorates him. His whole life is one of worship. And because of that, this boy is joyful and confident. And the psychiatrist looks at himself and he realizes the contrast. You see, he's a sane person an academic, a secular rationalist. And he knows that you should never surrender to anything because there's no immortality. There's no supernatural. There's nothing higher than oneself. But when this psychiatrist looks at his life, when he examines his life, a life that he has not given control over to anyone or anything, he realizes the emptiness of it. This crazy boy is alive because he's surrendered to something greater than himself. That's worship. To relinquish control to something or someone greater than yourself. And at one point in the play, the psychiatrist says this, without worship, you shrink. It's as brutal as that. I shrank my own life. I settled for being pallid and provincial out of my own eternal timidity. Without worship, you shrink. What this psychiatrist realizes through his patient is that in order to truly live, in order to truly be alive, you have to find something outside of yourself better than yourself to surrender to. You have to worship. To be alive, you have to worship. So what are you worshiping? Do you know what it is that actually gives you meaning in life, what you stand in reverence in front of? Let me give you a quick test to help you identify possibly what you worship. Because what you are worshiping is the crux of your story. Do you have something that when you think about or you're working on or you're doing, it just time just flies by? That no matter how long it takes you, you'll stay and do it forever because it just it doesn't even matter. One, two, three, four hours, time flies. You aren't even aware of time because you're enjoying it so much. That's worship. 
Because what you're experiencing there is a small taste of eternity. You're experiencing a small but significant freedom from time. You're lifted out of time. So what can you think about or do that causes a sense of timelessness? Secondly, what are the things that you worry about most? Those tend to be the things we worship. If something goes wrong with blank, I won't have any reason to go on. I'll lose my purpose. I might not even have any reason to live anymore. If blank goes away, anything you build your self-worth or stability on is something that you worship. And then thirdly, when there's a conflict between competing demands, where do you most effortlessly and certainly put your time and money? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. What do you think he means by that? Well, what you have money for is what you worship. When things are tight or bad, what's the one thing you still have money for? What you think about most, what you worry about most, where you put your money, that's what you worship. And what you worship determines the crux of your story. Your story does not primarily revolve around you, but around what you worship. The choices you make, the relationships you pursue, the things you buy, the things you sacrifice, all the things that make up your story revolve not around you, but around the thing that you worship. So if you want a, a brave, risk-taking, others-focused greatness, like John's story, you have to look at what he worshiped or rather who he worshiped. Every other object of worship besides what John worshiped won't be big enough. It won't be grand enough to cause you to be brave when it's really difficult to be brave. That will cause you to take a risk that might make you lose everything. That'll free you up to be so focused on other people that you don't even care what happens to you. In fact, any other thing we worship isn't enough for us to just make it through our own trials and sufferings. I was meeting with a, a person this week who's just having, a, I mean, she, just going through a ton. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know how people do this life without Jesus. It's just too hard. I don't know how you could go on. But when we worship who we were built for, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. When we worship what we were built for, who we were built for, two things happen. And we see them both in this passage. First, we cast our crowns before him. Chapter 4, verse 10. The 24 elders, which by the way, the 24 elders probably represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. As we worship who we were built for, we give him everything. We relinquish, relinquish control. Nothing else matters. We become zealous for the one thing, him. When we worship, we always lose control. You can't worship without surrendering control. Whether you worship sex or power or status or approval or fame or even control, we lose control to the object of our worship. If you, lose, if you live for power, power has you under its control. 
If you live for sex, sex has you under its control. If you live for approval, approval has you under its control. If you live for control, control has you under its control. In worship, we realize we don't belong to ourselves. But if you look at who God is, if you read his word and just see what we can learn about who he is, we see that when we surrender control, when we worship him, we actually are freed. That worshiping God actually humanizes us. And worshiping anything else dehumanizes us. In fact, it leads to death. And not just a physical death. It leads to a death of desire and of hope. The way you know you've been worshiping God is that he has become the crux of your story. Every decision, every relationship you pursue, the way you spend the money, the way you move throughout your career, the way you talk, all revolves around him, revolves around him using your story to tell his. It's like the parable of the hidden treasure that, Matthew, that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because when the man found the hidden treasure, he realized he had something infinitely more valuable than he had ever thought possible. And it changed his story completely. All of a sudden, he was willing to give up everything, to sacrifice everything to just buy that one field. Has that happened to you? Have you had an encounter with, with Jesus in such a way that you realize that he's imaginably more than you ever could hope for or dream and has completely changed your story? Has it caused you to cast all of your crowns before him? When you worship what you were built for, that's what happens. And secondly, when you worship what you were built for, you feel like a priest and a king. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says this. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When God is the center of your worship, you don't feel shame anymore. When God is the center of your worship, you don't feel worthless or like you're not enough. If you worship approval, you constantly feel like you're not enough. If you worship beauty, you gain a few pounds and you feel just awful. If you worship success, you are constantly comparing yourself to others. But when you worship God, did you hear the song that's being sung in heaven? You have made them a kingdom and a priest. They shall reign on the earth. When we worship God, he makes us feel as royal and as powerful as kings and as, as acceptable and as pure as priests because that's who we really are. That's who we were always meant to be. In Disney's Beauty and the Beast, the real enemy is not the chauvinistic, narcissist Gaston. I think it's, it's Belle and the Beast themselves. It's their beastliness 
that needs to be slain in that story. The beast with his obvious, horrific exterior, but also Bell. Bell, whose outward beauty is really just covering a hard, self-righteous heart. But throughout their story, being forced to live together in that castle, they begin to draw out what is most lovely and what is most true about the other. The beast becomes more compassionate and slower to anger, and Bell becomes more trusting and vulnerable. Do you know why fairy tales have stood the test of time, why we're constantly reinventing them and retelling them? Because when a story's good, when a story connects to our deepest longings, it's telling us the story of the gospel. Every story that we love, every story that really moves us, taps into the much larger story of God, which is the story of the gospel. The gospel says one day we'll be free like Peter Pan. The gospel says there really is a prince whose kiss will wake us from a deadly sleep. The gospel says there is a Superman who came from another planet to defeat evil and injustice. The gospel says we have a creator king who made us in his image as princes and princesses, but a serpent came and brought a curse and a lie of sin which changed us into beasts, into selfish, adulterous, hard-hearted beings. But a faraway prince who knew who we really were left in search of us. When the apostle John gets a glimpse into heaven... He hears an angel proclaim who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And at first everyone says no one's worthy. And John begins to weep because that's it. That's the end of the story. There's no hope. John knows that he's not worthy. But then he's told weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What did that mean? What did that mean that there was this one who had conquered? Well, it meant that there was one who lived the story perfectly. He lived the story you and I were supposed to live. He lived a life devoted to God. He lived a life where he loved his neighbors more than himself. His was a worthy story, but there's more. When John turns around to see this, this strong and powerful lion, all he sees is a lamb, a lamb with its throat cut. He says, I saw a lamb standing that looked as if it had been slain. See, the gospel says in order to restore us, as princes and princesses of the Most High King, the true prince would have to become the beast that needed to be slain. On the cross, the true prince, the Son of God, Jesus, exchanged his life for ours. He became the beastliness, uh, he became our beastliness so that we could become what we always were, what we were always intended to be kings and priests, princes and princesses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived the story you and I were supposed to live and then died the death that we deserve so that we might live his story. 
so that we might take part in this grand, huge, beautiful story of redemption where death doesn't win. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the one, the only one worthy of all our devotion. Behold the only one worthy to be worshipped. Behold the only one worthy to be the crux of our stories. And the one whose resurrection from the grave declares for us a happily forever after. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this story. For this story that's the truest story. That's a story that tells us that even in our sin, even in our struggle, even in our running away, even in our failures, that our story is one of love and redemption. Jesus, thank you for coming after us. Thank you for coming and living the life that we were made for, living it perfectly and then dying the death that we deserve so that we may have life and life abundant, so that we may become the people that you always intended for us to be. And Father, I pray as we believe this story more, as we behold the beauty of the gospel, we would become people who worship not just with our singing, but with our whole lives. That we would live stories like John. Brave, risk-taking, others-focused, great stories. And that can only happen as we see you, Jesus. So may we see you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.